It's great to be with you this morning, and I appreciate how Tom introduced me. He did a great job. A lot of times people aren't very familiar with the Committee on Discipleship Ministries, or what we call PCA Discipleship Ministries, or sometimes Christian Discipleship Ministries. I like to say the C can be just about anything you want it to be, as long as it's Christian, that kind of thing. Most people don't know what we do. When I go around to PCA churches, they say, great, you work at the General Assembly. What does that mean? This is the way I normally explain it. You have the local church, and that's called a session, is the governing body of the local church. But most ministry is done through teams or committees or something like that. We have the regional body called the Presbytery. They, too, have committees that help you do the ministry. And then you have the General Assembly, which has different committees that help local churches do the work of ministry throughout the the whole world. Most PCA people know what Mission to the World is. How many of you have heard of Mission to the World? Now, if I were to ask you, what does Mission to the World help local churches do? You would say, they do missions. Missions, international missions. Many people have heard of Mission to North America. They handle church planting and mercy ministry. If I said Reform University Fellowship, many understand that. That helps local churches do campus ministry. Well, here's the question. Who helps local churches make disciples within their walls, within the congregation? That's us. We help local churches in the area of children, youth, men's, women's, older adult, and leadership development within the congregation. And so that what I do is exactly what Tom said. I go around from church to church, not necessarily coming and tell them what to do, But hear what's going on, hear what the problems are, and maybe help connect them. One, if you have a great idea, share it with others around the denomination. Or, if you're having a struggle, maybe taking the experience I have with other churches and helping you think through the issues. So, in fact, this afternoon we're going to have a lunch and I'll meet with some of your discipleship people and we're going to do just that. What's going on and then what can we do better? So that's what we do at uh, Committee on Discipleship Ministries I'm based in Atlanta, that's why my accent is the way it is. Hopefully you're still able to understand me. And, but I, am, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and now I'm living in Atlanta, Georgia. But this morning we are going to look at Psalm 127. Tom told me that y'all were going through these Psalms of Ascent. And fortunately I had already had a sermon on this in Psalms of Ascent. It's a sermon I preach because this is connected to Discipleship, Psalm 127. Many of you are probably familiar with R.C. Sproul, teacher, professor, author. I read one time that he said that the word in the English language he hates the most is useless. Especially when it's applied to him or to something he's done. Because he, feel, he, he said that whenever the word useless is applied to who he is or what he's done, he feels like he's useless. It, becomes to, it comes to define his identity. And, and yet that idea of uselessness, or sometimes the biblical word is vanity, that topic is here in Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is the centerpiece of the Psalms of Ascent. There are 15 psalms of ascent. This one's the center one. If you know anything about Hebrew poetry, you know in Hebrew poetry, whatever's in the center 
usually is, is sort of lifted up as a, as a high point in that particular section. And remember what the Psalms of Ascent are, that on the way to the temple, God's people were going to worship God in this place where he had established, and so they were singing these psalms in the idea of orienting themselves to this time of worship. And in particular, in Psalm 127, orienting them to this idea of covenant community. How do we live as a covenant group? And in specifically in this psalm, how do we live as a family? So here's the question. In the midst of your effort, in your immediate family, or in your broader family, or in your church family, in, in, in all, think about all of your effort in those contexts, what is your view for the work of God? That's the idea as you come to Psalm 127. Follow with me as I read. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Again, unite with me in prayer. Oh Lord, this is your word before us. And we now pray that you will open our eyes that we may see the wonderful things that you have for us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God. For you are our strength and you are our Redeemer. Lord, we remember what your prophet says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but your word, O God, stands forever. Bless your word to our lives now. Amen. In reading the blog post, the web name of the person posting was Sir Awesomely. And though that was sort of a bold name, as you read his blog, you saw words that revealed great insecurity. This is a 17-year-old man, young man, in Canada. His parents claimed Christ, and when they had their only child, they said, we are going to raise our child by a book written by a professing Christian, and it was a book that was very popular at the time when he was born, and, and many Christians now understand his parents professed Christ, but they believed in a type of Christianity where they would raise him up, and it really didn't need a church to do it. They would raise their child up in a different way, but it, with Christ as the head, and they teach their child that mom and dad were like God to their child, and they would, there would be complete obedience. Because there was so much out in the world, you would have to homeschool your kids. No TV, no movies, 
And make sure you limited your child's access to other people because there are a lot of crazy people out there and didn't want to, didn't want him to be harmed. They, they really genuinely wanted to protect their child. And so Sir Awesomely was writing about this history and he said, I was really okay with that for 15 years. But then I found out more about the world outside of my family. As he had been about starting his 16 year, when he was 16 year old, he, he, with his own money, because he had a job, he joined a martial arts group and loving the exercise and the discipline and the self-confidence that came with that martial arts. But then his parents went to an event where they heard a sermon saying that martial arts were evil. And if you practice martial arts, a demon would come and take over your body. And so his parents came home and said to their son, 16-year-old son, you must stop right now. And their son, for the first time in his life, said, no, this means a lot to me, I want to keep doing it. Do you understand how ridiculous this idea is? And they began this argument, and the argument spiraled back and forth to, the, to what the par parents finally said is, you have three months to get out of our house. Pack up your things, get out of our house. And so here he was, writing this blog post. He was homeless at 17 years old. And he wrote this. I'm just trying to make it until I'm 18 so I can join the military. And I'll have a place to be. And in his words, you could sense anger, you could sense despair. Now, I read that, and I understood. This is a one-sided account. I'm only getting his side of the story. I'm not talking to the parents. But it was interesting, as I read it, my mind wandered to my own parenting. You know, what, what had I done? Things that I had done right, but things that I had done wrong. The rules that I had made. The times I had disciplined out of anger or a sense of control rather than wanting to really develop my child. The missed opportunities, the anxiety that I felt, that I still, still feel as a parent. And that anxiety was present in the story, but I know the anxiety was in me. And I realized that anxiety so often plagues our family relationships. It can, anxiety can plague a, a marriage, it can plague a, inter, a nuclear family or even a broader family or a church family. Psalm 127 acknowledges this anxiety. And the text shows our tendency, the tendency of man, but also the psalm shows the work of the Lord. That this is vain effort versus God's blessing. And in the psalm, the Lord gives a message saying, He is at work. He is at work. And we're, He's calling us to trust Him in all of these close relationships, particularly in our family relationships, and only in trusting Him when it comes to our, our marriage, our immediate family, our broader family, our church family. Only as we put our trust in Him will we truly know peace and fulfillment. The psalmist presents two paths. And the key element in knowing which path am I following is your view of the Lord. Because there's a path of vanity and the path of the Lord. 
Let's look first at the way of vanity. The word vain is used three times in verses 1 and 2. And that word means emptiness or nothingness. Basically, you put the thing, something of no lasting value. That's our natural bent as fallen creatures is to pursue this that seems so great to us, but it really has no lasting value. That's what we rehearsed in our confession of sin. We're so prone to take that direction. There's there's this idea that flows out of our pride of, I can do this myself. And the result is anxious toil. The psalmist brings us up. Verse 1 mentions human effort without the recognition of God. You're working hard. You're putting the effort in. But it's like that hamster on the wheel. Going and going and going. And then you see it there at the end of verse 2. It talks about the bread of anxious toil, understand the image there is it gets to the point where our effort becomes like food to us. We want to do the effort, and that's what we think sustains us. We get up early, we go to bed late, we lie awake making plans and going over different circumstances and contingencies in our mind, trying to to grasp some way to get control. And the effort is great, but the gain is elusive. And then the effort becomes unpleasant. And we enter into this spiral of work and worry. Work and worry. I'm worrying so much so i got to do something, but then that makes me more anxious. And the psalmist recognizes this. It's the anxious toil. But then that also leads to a blind anxiety where this anxiety becomes a fog and it blocks or or warps our vision and we fail to consider the work of God. That's why verse 3 begins with this interjection. It says, behold. It's like he's, God is, through the psalmist, is taking our face and saying, look a minute, wait, see. Get back on track. Because we fail to see how God's work affects our view of family. James Montgomery Boyce, in commenting on this, this text, he says that this is the point of the psalm. Children are a blessing. The family relationships are a blessing because they are from the Lord. But also the the preposition here is it's not just that the the children are from the Lord, but it also they belong to the Lord. What happens in our culture? For so, so often we view children and our toil with children that children become a burden. So often you see this in parents. I just can't wait till I get to the next step. I, I talked to somebody just in the last week. That was there. I just want to get to the next step, and then the next step. And I remember feeling that in my own life. Oh, I just can't wait till they can walk. Oh, I just can't wait till they go to school. Oh, I just can't wait till they go to high school. Oh, and now I'm saying, oh, I wish I could get them back. <laughs> can I get an amen? <laughs> but that's the way we look at it. We need to see that this anxiety that we feel, it's a warning light. We need to step out of the turmoil to see the bigger picture and to gain the perspective. I read a blog of a mom. She talked about her own childhood. She said, I spent my childhood like a proverbial child who sat on the beach because I was afraid of sharks or seaweed monsters while all my friends were frolicking in the waves. And she said that 
What happened to that is she wanted more for her own children. She had two young boys. And she mentioned that she had this struggle in her own mind between what she called confidence mom and anxiety mom. And she used, said a story about she was at a park one time and it was a nice park with a stream going through and it had rocks in the stream. And her little boys were carefully going across the stream and she was watching this and then confidence mom spoke up and said, well, if you go across quickly, it'll be easier. The oldest looked at her sort of like oldest boys do. Mom, you don't know what you're talking about. But the younger child decided to try it and began to bound across the stream and then the older saw it, and they began going back and forth, back and forth across the stream. And the mom was watching this, so proud of herself, but then anxiety mom stood up and said, those rocks are slippery. I wonder if they should be wearing helmets. Or I wonder where the closest hospital is. And she had this tension. But then finally she said, confidence mom took over and realized that anxiety overlooks the now to focus on possible dangers. So she took a deep breath and decided to trust in confidence, Mom, and enjoy her children. Now, the plan was good, but it's incomplete because she was trusting on some type of inner strength. As a Christian, we have so much more. We rest in the strength of someone greater. And anxiety is that sign that we're losing sight of what God is doing. We toss and turn. And when that happens, what should that be? Brothers and sisters, that should be a call to prayer in our own lives. We're prone to strategize, to gain that control. We lock in on what, what can I do, what can I not do, and that's vanity. We need to step back and consider. Now, I'm not saying we need to be passive, but yet we need to see that God is at work, and that's what the psalmist brings up. Verse 1 has two conditional statements. In effect, the psalmist is saying, you want to avoid vanity? Recognize the work of God. The one who never slumbers or sleeps, we saw that in Psalm 121, is always actively caring for his people. The Lord builds. The psalmist brings that. The laborers are active, but they're not alone. The master builder, the creator, is at work through the builders. You can have great craftsmen, You can have great tools, but the Lord alone creates something of value. Not only does God create, the Lord also oversees. The watchmen are vigilant. They raise the alarm. They prevent trouble. But true security lies in the work of God. Think about what we do as parents. We spend time, effort, money guarding our children from harm. And that's not bad. That's what we're called to do. But we never put our trust wholly in that. Car seats are great. Helmets are great. Chaperones are great. Filtering software is great. But only the Lord protects. See, that's our challenge as parents. We do need to protect, 
But we also need to let go. That's, that's what I hate. That's where I made most of my mistakes as a parent, because especially with their oldest, I didn't know what I was doing. And so I was trying to control. We need to have that tension. Our temptation is we want to build walls. We want to watch over everything. We just, we, I don't want my child to have any harm. Problem in today, according to some youth authors, is that we've gone to the other extreme and now it's called free-range parenting where you sort of let your child do whatever. Now that's not the answer either. We're called to have this tension with our eyes focused on the Lord. That's what the psalmist is calling. Because you know, in time, you can build those walls, you can set those restrictions, but in time, the walls are going to crumble. The children will get older. There will be a point where you can't see them. That's what I'm going through now. I've got a, a son who lives in a different city, another son who is in college. I can't watch him all the time. My daughter, now all of our focus is on her. <laughs> Bless her heart. <clears throat> but we have to rely on the one who's always present. So the Lord builds, the Lord oversees, and the Lord blesses. That this idea of blessing, it's implied in the building, it's implied in the watching, but the end of verse 2 is clear. He gives sleep. Now, of course, the psalmist here is, is talking about physical rest. But again, this is Hebrew poetry and it's a metaphor. Not only is it physical rest, in fact, this becomes a great text. If you're tossing and turning, go to this text. The Lord gives to His beloved sleep. Lord, I need it right now. <laughs> Pray the Word back to Him. But there's also an idea here of relief from the anxious toil. How does God do that? How does God give us relief from the anxious toil? It could be He will change the circumstances. But it also could be that He gives us strength even in the midst of the circumstances where we can know a peace that is beyond our comprehension. Isn't that what Paul talks about in Philippians? Peace which passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Verse 3 talks about heritage, a reward. Children are heritage and reward. What God is saying here through this in this poetic way is God provides for your future. Verses 4 and 5, it uses the image of arrows and quiver and gate. These are old, this is Old Testament imagery for war and justice. The message is this, God's gifts lead to the vindication of the faithful. His blessing overcomes enemies and overcomes that which causes us shame. Often in our lives, anxiety is tied to the fact that we don't know the results. The psalmist is saying, Believer, listen, the covenant God, the God who wants to have a relationship with you, is working, He's watching, He's protecting and providing. And it's God's faithfulness that ensures the blessing. 
and we remain steady in trusting Him in the present for the future. But we need to ask a question. Why is this psalm for God's people on pilgrimage? And, and why in the world is it the centerpiece of these psalms of ascent? Well, what about those who don't have children? Single or married without children? Or, or maybe the children are gone. What does all this mean? Psalm 127 shows the faithfulness of God in day-to-day life. Faithfulness of God in the day-to-day life of family. But there's also a connection in this psalm with what we read, if you went to 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David. There are images here in the psalm that harken back to what God says to David. David came to God and said, I'm going to build you a house. God said, no you won't. Your offspring will build my house. But I will build you a house. I will, and through that, I will secure my people. I will establish my kingdom and I will give them rest. You hear the echoes in Psalm 127. So 127 comes in and says, Brothers and sisters, those who claim God, worship the God who establishes the house, who builds the city. Remember, they were on their way to Jerusalem. The God who establishes the house, builds the city, and establishes the kingdom of the Son of David. That's why we use this psalm now. Because we know who the ultimate Son of David is. It's none other than Jesus who is the Christ. But there's another message in this text. It's at the end of verse 2. Do you, you know what it says he gives to his beloved sleep? That, that word beloved in Hebrew is a variation of the Hebrew word Jedediah. Jedediah. And it means beloved. But we have to ask the question, what does it mean? How do I become one of the beloved of God? What's involved with that? Psalm 127 is attributed to Solomon. It's only one of two psalms that are attributed to Solomon. You remember his story? Let's go back. 2 Samuel 7. God promises David, your offspring will build the temple. Your offspring will be established. David heard that. He grew strong, but he also grew proud. And so then in 2 Samuel 11, David stayed home while the kings went out. And his Joab and his army, they went out. David stayed home and committed adultery with Bathsheba the wife of one of his prime generals who was out in the field, Uriah. David committed adultery and then tried to cover it up, even to the point where he had Uriah killed. And David married Bathsheba. The prophet Nathan months later came and confronted David with his sin. David repented, but he was told, the child will die. And he did. He died within a week. But then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. She conceived and gave birth to another son. And David called that son Solomon. But then in 2 Samuel 12, it says this, And the Lord loved him, that son, 
and sent Nathan again. He said, call that child Jedidiah, the beloved of the Lord. Get the picture. In the midst of hardship, loss, sin, repentance, a son was born. God's faithfulness provided that son. And that baby had done nothing. But God said, call that child beloved. Now we know through the story that later men, Solomon would stray. But the Lord's love always remained. Brothers and sisters, our nature leads us to think that peace and blessing come from hard work. And when we get everything right, then it'll be okay. The message of Psalm 127 is, the Lord is at work. He loves those who admit their inability and their error. And they trust His strength. The covenant-keeping God is at work, watching, blessing, providing in our families, in our church family, in the whole of life. So the psalmist is calling on us, in the midst of all those circumstances, in the midst of all your effort, put away the vanity. Put your hope in the ever-faithful work of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the God who despite our sin and our weakness, through Jesus Christ, you call us your beloved. Oh Lord, bless us that we may know that faithfulness of God in all of our lives. Lord, you know what we face this week. You know when anxieties plague us even this morning. In the quietness of our hearts, Lord, we give them to you. Lord, deliver us from having confidence in our own strength. May our confidence be in the God who builds the house watches over the city. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.